You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema with Big Willie and the Samurai, bringing class to trash since To the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Hopefully, you can hear this. Uh, we've had some <laughs> some technical difficulties, to say the least. Like we're a first-time show, and <laughs> we're not. We've been doing this for eight plus years, but uh, some bumps in the road. Skype decided to uh, have our volume turned, my volume turned down when it updated, and it sounded like I was way away from my microphone on, on our most recent episode. So, apologies to that, and apologies to our. Our guest, Greg Travis, I didn't mean to do him like that, and uh, these are the breaks, I guess, sometimes uh, on this road we travel. Now, um, enough negativity, let's get to some positivity. we got the Prince of Pennsylvania, alongside Large William, which is me, of course, uh, and our good pal Sammy is off uh, in a uh, baby oil breakdancing contest today as we speak, so... Popping and locking, Will Shiny uh, has never looked so good. Uh, <laughs> Totter, how are you? I'm doing okay, brother. Getting along, getting along. Yes, exactly. Cause a little under the weather. And uh, it's daylight savings, so we got less oh, yeah. than usual. So yeah. It's, we, we suffer because... It's nice so and delirious. <laughs> yeah. We suffer because we love you all. So um, this is, as I said, episode 395. Uh, this was a bit of a... Uh, kind of a freestyle episode. We didn't really feel indebted to anything else in terms of programming. We wanted to just kind of get off the grid and just pick a couple of random things. Uh, and that's a pretty random episode. Um, Todd, what did you pick? I picked 1970s Venus in Furs by Mr. Jess Franco. No particular reason. Um... Uh, it's a first-time watch for me. Actually, both of these were first-time watches for me. Mm. Um, so, yeah, but I've been I've been uh, intrigued by this. Uh, I, I, you know, I can't say that Franco. I keep wanting to say James Franco, and it's killing me. Um, uh, he's uh, he's 
not my favorite filmmaker, to be perfectly blunt. Uh, I think he has some mildly interesting films. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he's on, he's he's pretty good. Uh, I still to this day, well, we'll get into it. Mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, that was my that was my pick for uh, for today. Yeah, it kind of surprised me to be honest. Um, yeah, well, I uh, the part of it part of it to be perfectly honest was that I mean it was. Uh, I got it from uh, Netflix on DVD, so I was like, "Well, this is sitting here. I got to watch it anyway." Yeah, it'll be an interesting pick, something uh, interesting to talk about. So, well, for sure. I figured I'd throw it out there. Ooh, time to get up. Hey, um, let me make sure we're gonna get no more of those. Um, yeah, no, fair enough. I like I said, I don't know that we've covered a Jess Franco on the show. I can't think of one. No. Um, off the top of my head, I can't think of any. No. No, nor can I. Covered a couple of genre lens, but we've never covered a Franco. Um, yeah, so that's uh, we're gonna get into some of his stuff now. Um, his most famous film, arguably, I would say. Um, yeah. What's what would you yeah, say up is there. as famous? Uh, uh, probably Vampiros Lesbos. Yeah. Um, would be the one that would spring to my mind first when I think of uh, when I think of Franco. Lines. Oh, um, but there's uh, well, let me think. Uh, there's that. Um, do, 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 do. For me, ninety nine women. Um, uh, oh, what was that horrible one? Uh, Oasis of the Zombies. Which, which, that he, which was that horrible? Yeah, well, one? yeah, throw a dart. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, that's stuff like that. Um, that's those are the only ones that I could think of off the top of my head that really. That really stand out as being like the ones that people think of when they think of uh, when they think. Well, he did. Uh, well, no, he did the Fu Manchu movies. He did a couple of Fu Manchu movies, right? And I, I think he, he did. I've did he? Never seen those? If you had. Oh yeah, with uh, with Christopher Lee, uh, if I'm not mistaken, because they were both. And this also, along with this, they were uh, produced by uh, the guy uh, Harry Allen Towers. Um, and I know he made. I'm, I'm pretty sure he made at least one of the. One of the Fu Manchu movies, if not a, a couple of them, uh, and I'm, I'm pretty sure he also did. Did he throw in his? Did he throw his hat in the ring for a Dracula movie or a vamp? Well, vampire movie. Yeah, he did about a million vampire movies, but um, I think he might have done a, a Dracula movie, but I can't. Some it's not going to. Uh, uh, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's he's got what like five million credits. I no. think yeah, I think five million and seven. That's close. He's him and Mike are uh, are neck and neck right now. Yeah, he's pretty prolific. Oh yeah, he liked to work. Um, yes, but you know, we'll get into him a little more sure. as we uh, roll. Uh, my pick was one that I'd meant to cover on the show for many a moon, um, and for whatever reason we hadn't. But you know, again, you just can't uh, can't cover them all. Mm-hmm. It. Uh, is a film from a director that has been featured a lot more than once on this show, uh, Johnny Toe. And it's his 1998 film, A Hero Never Dies. So I'd be very interested to see what you think about this one. I hadn't seen it in... Mm, I say what, gosh. About 13 years or so? 12, 13 oh, years? Geez. So, uh, interesting I, to revisit. 
when we got to the end of that one, well, when I got to the end of that one, I, I realized that I had either seen it before and completely forgotten about it, which I find hard to believe, mm-hmm. um, or I had seen that ending somewhere before, either on a show, um, maybe about a uh, Hong Kong cinema, or somewhere uh, I'd seen it. But um, but yeah, yeah. First time watch as far as I'm as far as I can remember because the rest of the movie was a complete blank to me as I was watching it. It's funny because you know as we tend to throw the names of the two films together, these two films lend themselves to arguably the arguably the most GGTMC of GGTMC show titles. I was thinking we can call it a hero in furs. <laughs> a Venus never dies. Our Venus never dies was the other one. Yes. There you go. So. There you have it. Um, without further ado, let's discuss what you and I have been watching. So what have you been getting into lately, Todd? Uh, not a ton outside of the stuff I've been uh, writing about and or uh, doing for the show. Um, I caught up with Free State of Jones uh, from 2016, Mr. Matthew McConaughey, um, and it's it was really good. I was impressed with it. It's a Civil War really? story. Yeah, yeah, I liked it a lot. Uh, did you see it or no? I didn't. Um, okay. Alan, friend of the show, mm. had messaged me, I believe, to say he liked it quite a bit. Yeah. But I have to be honest, I thought it looked very middle of the road. I just, I didn't really have a lot of interest in it. I mean, I, I was kind of leery about getting into it as well because of that. Yeah, I had that same thinking, um, just from. Uh, seeing uh, a few things about it, but it, it was yeah no I, it was really good. I mean it's it's uh, it's pretty bloody. Um, it's obviously politically charged to a degree, although it doesn't really it doesn't bludgeon you over the head with it. Uh, and it also, by that same token, seems to be wanting to fulfill its genre needs uh, as far as a war story and as far as uh, just the character of um, oh crap uh, McConaughey's character I can't think of his name off the top of my head it is not Jones by the way Jones refer- Jones? no Jones refers to the county in the uh, ah. in the state um, but it was really good uh, I liked it a lot I'd recommend it I mean it's got a few issues as far as um, some structure issues, I mean, the thing goes back and forth periodically to this court case in the uh, in the then present uh, regarding uh, the guy's McConaughey's um, son and his uh, lineage, um, and, and that really—I mean, I understand why it's in there, and it makes sense in the in the film uh, up to a point. I mean, it's a little more. Of, uh, of something that's a little more overt um, in what it's trying to say, and it doesn't quite... It's not very well integrated into the film. Other than that, though, I mean, it's, it's, it's really good. I would recommend it to people, definitely. I mean, it is two hours and 20 minutes. I don't... Well, yeah, I could see it, I could see it getting shaved uh, a tiny bit, but... Uh, but when you look at it in the the grand picture of what it's doing, um, I think that most of it in the film is uh, is essential. So, but yeah, no, it's uh, it's pretty high recommend. Yeah, I liked it a lot. Oh wow, I'm, I might have to cram it then. 
Yeah, no, I would I would definitely recommend it for Cram. I don't know that. Well, I'm going to say if this made anything in your top thirty, it would probably be in the back ten, like the twenty to thirty range, maybe. Um, but worth seeing, definitely. I uh, went from that, caught up with Mad Mel and Bloodfather, and uh, this was good, too. Um, you, when you watch the trailers for it, you're kind of expecting one of these latter-day Liam Neeson kind of action joints with the old craggy guy uh, kicking ass and taking names, and Mel is certainly old and cranky in it, uh, but it's not really something I would call action-packed. Um, it is good, though. Uh, and, you know, Mel really carries the film on his shoulders. The um, the relationship with his daughter is odd, but it makes sense in the context of the, uh, the story. And the daughter character was pretty irritating at times. But overall, uh, overall I liked it. Uh, it's pretty good. Solid. Um, I would watch it again, so... Put that there. And then finally caught up with, well, didn't catch up with, went to see uh, Kong Skull Island from this year. And it was a lot of fun. It was a lot more fun than I was anticipating it to be. I, after seeing the trailer when this was initially announced, uh, my first thinking was, you know, please don't suck, please don't suck, please don't suck, because King Kong is a huge uh, favorite in my uh, in my life both, you know, pretty much every one of the movies, even the Jackson one, I like a lot, so um, I was really, really hoping that this didn't just suck a bag of ass, because that seems to be the way that a lot of these reimaginings seem to go, and this was done by the people, uh, the producers, at least, I'm pretty sure, uh, the guys who did the uh, recent Godzilla film, the Gareth Edwards one, and this is, yeah, this is, they're world building now, they're doing the Marvel Cinematic Universe for uh, giant monsters, I suppose, um, and while that one had issues of blandness going on, this one really didn't um, for me. I mean, it does have issues still. Um, the uh, I don't know. I don't know who designs monsters in Hollywood anymore, but whoever it is really needs to go to school or something. I don't know. They just they're so they're either so implausible or else they're so utilitarian that they just don't there's nothing all that great about them they don't have that uh, that sense of wonder you want out of a monster like this um a few of the a few of the monsters in this are pretty good there's you know like giant spiders and you know that sort of thing and uh some of them are are, are nice but the main uh, like bad monster villain monster whatever you want to call them um they're kind of, I mean, they're okay, but they, they don't really make a hell of a lot of sense, uh, and they're just, you know, they're another one of these new monsters that uh, that everybody seems to churn out. Uh, you know, Kong is great. He's not really, I mean, it's not really a, a Beauty and the Beast story like, the, uh, like it's always been uh, with the character. Uh, he's... He's much more of a god in this one, or much more of well, I'll put it this way: he's much more he's much more in in the vein of like a superhero in this one, um, which is kind of I mean that's this is the way that they're going with it. Uh, the other characters are pretty standard; um, there's no real surprises about it. Uh, this film, I think, does have some uh, 
does have some points to it as far as you know politics and that sort of thing. But that that also comes you know partly from being set in 1973 uh, and you know what was going on at the time and all that sort of thing. And uh, you know Sam Jackson is great, John Goodman is great, uh, Hiddleston is okay, uh, Brie Larson is. Uh, no, she's pretty good in it too. Uh, although, you know, I'll be perfectly honest. I would rather just look at her than, um, than, uh, see anything that she's really doing in this one because there's not really a ton for her to do in this. Uh, but just enough. And who else? Uh, John C. Riley's okay in it. Um, who else? Shea Wiggum. Uh, Shea Wiggum's really good in it. Although. Quite a cast in this one. Oh yeah, there really is. I was surprised. Uh, I was surprised by the, um by the cast and, and they're all good there's you know decent performances decent action i mean obviously i'm always going to lament that uh, you know the, the takeover of cg over something like stop motion or practical effects in general and i wouldn't expect to see like a guy in a suit and something like this um but um but it's really good that the locales are, are really nice what ones aren't cg'd unfortunately i had to watch it in 3d which is just a, a whole nother uh gripe of mine because i just i don't care for it and when i watch it i think of two things i think of this looks like my old Viewmaster, and i think of wow this really makes it look more fake than it uh than it should because it always it always brings out the uh the cg compositing and the cg backgrounds it always because of the separation and it just makes it look way more fake uh to me so uh, i'm looking forward to seeing this again in 2d uh, I will be buying this one. I, I, I really had a, lo- a fun time with it. It's fun. It keeps going. It keeps moving, moving, moving. Um, and it's it's pretty violent. Um, a 14A type rating? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, around there. I mean, it, the, primarily the the primarily the violence is limited to uh, to monsters and shit like that. And there's a nice little callback to uh, to uh, the original King Kong versus Godzilla from 1960, whatever it was, 2, 4, something like that. Um with a, a little uh, a little octopus devilfish uh, fight there going on, which was nice. Uh, so for fans of that one, you get that. Uh, yeah, no, I'd recommend it though. I'd recommend and I'd recommend seeing it in a theater. It's big enough and it's fun enough and you know spectacular enough, spectacly enough that uh, it's worth putting the money down. I think so. That's it for me, brother. Yeah, I don't know that I've seen a lot of 3D. That's really. I, I never have appreciation of the medium or the format. I even saw Dread in 3D, and everybody was like, "Oh, it looks so great in 3D." I was like, "No, it looks like shit in 3D." Yeah, 3D just doesn't. Was like, "Wow, man, I'm so glad I saw that in 3D." Yeah, 3D. Oh, 3D is is one of the most purest of novelties because it's so non value added. Uh, but it's it's well, unless you want to count like adding sugar into cereal uh, as being value added. But for me, it's it, it's rarely anything. And I, I appreciate that you know films like Creature from the Black Lagoon and all that sort of thing were originally done in 3D. And um, and when I was a kid, listen, I'd, I'd be the first one to line up to to see something like that or Space Hunter, or, you know, all that kind of stuff. But it it's uh, you know it never really worked. I. I Maybe part of it is because I always had to wear 3D glasses over my regular glasses, and it was a, a kind of an annoyance. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's because it, it always makes the film much darker uh, than I would prefer. Um, but what can you do about that? And 
yeah, I just, eh, I, I never cared for 3D. Never have, ever. And I, I highly doubt that I'm going to. The only reason that I saw this in 3D because it was the earliest show. So, um, yeah, that's that's my opinion on 3D. Suck at 3D. There you go. There you go. <clears throat> All right. Um, started off, because this is sort of a few weeks' worth. Kids had never seen Back to the Future. They had wanted to for some time. With Lego Dimensions, a game they've been playing, and it's just great at world building and sort of a big universe with little sort of planets within it, so to speak, or realms. Um, so they were kind of aware of Back to the Future, but they really wanted to watch it, so we threw it on, and I hadn't seen it probably in about 25 years, I want to say, roughly, roughly. Good Lord. Yeah. I mean, I like the Back to the Future films, but I, much like, it's funny, much like a lot, a lot of the really beloved films of the 80s. Uh, you know, your Ghostbusters and stuff, I, I hadn't seen really in a lot of time. I, I always liked them, didn't love them, but I have to say, almost on a re, almost more so now than even then, uh, on this rewatch with my kids, and I don't know if it was me just kind of geeking out because they were geeking out, but I, I loved it. I, I really appreciated the craft. I think it's a really well-made film, uh, for what it is. I think it's as, <clears throat> as good a film as sort of popcorn fare can give you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Christopher Lloyd's a lot of fun. Michael, yeah. Say Michael Scott. <laughs> 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 Whoa, uh, that's down the road from you. <laughs> <laughs> um, Michael J. Fox was great in it. Um, it's cool explaining some of the stuff to my kids about like Chuck Berry and some of the kind of callbacks in the film and little winks at the, the audience that happened. So, did you yeah. point out the Huey Lewis? I did. I did. Yeah, I said, nice. I said, and I said, plus, I said, we got an album by this band. Nice. So, sports here at home on vinyl. So. Yeah. yeah, I've only I've only ever seen the first one of those, as is typical with me and oh, franchises. You've never seen? You've never seen the second or third? Never have. Oh, no. Wow. Well, I'll get to those here in a moment. Uh, um, <laughs> Manchester by the Sea. Okay. Now, this has all of the the makings to be one that would make my top ten. Um, <laughs> Not to get too spoilery with our top thirty show, but um, personal uh, stuff aside, with Casey Affleck, um, are you are you not a fan of his? Well, I love him as an actor. Oh, okay, okay. But he's he's been going through some stuff where you know you get harassing a woman on the set of a film and some really ugly behavior that. Uh, oh, personal stuff. Okay, I don't approve of certainly. Um, right. Pretty vile, but putting all that aside and talking about just the film for a moment. Um, I have to say, I was I was pretty disappointed with this film. Um, the subject matter on paper would, would really work for me. Uh, the locale, the sort of very blue-collar stuff tends to work for me. Kitchen sinky drama. But uh, Affleck's great in it. Uh, the cast is pretty decent, but I feel like Lonergan tries a little too hard to make it um, charming, blue-collar, like goodwill hunting-y, Massachusetts mm -hmm. people, and it's very episodic. I don't know. It just didn't work for me the way I'd hoped it would. So, yeah. I mean, it is what it is. Um, saw Arrival with uh, with the wife. Um, Denny Villeneuve's a filmmaker whose scope and vision keeps running in lockstep with his increase in power and budget. Um, this was a good film, though. I think it's like a lot of the great sci-fi. I don't. Wanna, I don't want to tab this as great, but um, a lot of the good to great sci-fi films t 
tend to have more on their mind than simply science fiction. Oh, absolutely, yes. <clears throat> and this is no exception. Um, I know some of our listeners didn't like it. A lot did. Uh, I did find it quite moving myself. Um, Amy Adams, it's funny. It, it has, you know, with Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner, it has the two actors that I'm never excited when they're in a film. <laughs> yeah. After I watch them perform, I'm always glad they were. Yeah, yeah, I, I can see that. I don't know about those two. I just, I never, I almost get, I'm like, oh, man, Amy Adams, Jeremy Renner. But they, they're good. They're solid, man. They're great. And Forrest Whitaker is really fantastic in a small supporting role. I, I said to my wife, man, I said, he's just, he's, he's, he's a treasure. He's a really great actor. <clears throat> um, next up was Aquarius, which was a Brazilian film that our good friend, the Red Waffle, Paul, had recommended to me. Um... Starring Sonia Braga. Uh, this and maybe... Oh, I love her. Yeah, absolutely. This was directed by Kleber Mendonca Filio, or Fio, um, who had done Neighboring Sounds a few years prior. Uh, this is about an, an older woman, 65 years old, retired music critic, and she has this building uh, that they're trying to demolish, and they, they can't demolish it and start over until she gives up her unit she's the last one in this building and it's what her looking matter back at her life and her family and stuff and it's a good film kind of a quiet film but uh, quite good uh next up was back to the future 2 which uh when i was young i would have said was my favorite of the two i had seen at the time but um and that's the that's the future one that's the future the hoverboards the night okay all that stuff now this one is is more loud and grating than i remembered it um Lloyd's still good, Fox is still good, they're having fun, but everything's turned up and it's it's a lot. It really falls victim to I think a lot of the a lot of the missteps that sequels can make with everything gets turned up to eleven, everything's more, it's louder, it's uglier. Um, it's still a fun film, certainly. But now having seen all three, um, it's definitely the weakest of the trilogy. Um, but yeah. which is funny because William, I asked him last night, and at first he thought two was his least favorite, but I think now it's his favorite. So I think there's something to be said for the technology in it, as far as fascination with kids. Um, then my wife and I decided to go do a double at the theater, and we did Logan. And I really had no interest in seeing this. Um, Wolverine was my favorite character in comic books as a kid. That's not, um, you know, that's not some niche. <laughs> Um, kind of off the beaten path choice. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a reason that character's gotten such a push in comics and in the films. But I just, as I've gotten older, I've just been a bit fatigued um, with the character. Um, I'd heard some really great things, and finally, what put me over the top? And I, I think he might have directed another one of them. Was James Mangold? Uh, James Mangold? Uh, uh, yeah, I believe he did the last one. Yeah, which I want to say he did the Wolverine. Yeah, I think he did, which was a bit of a mess. Um, but I like Mangold as a filmmaker. Um, and for whatever reason, I thought, you know what? I'd heard good things. Everyone in the community was buzzing about it. I thought, well, okay, let's give it a, give it a shot. Uh, I have to say, it, it's, it's good. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, you had seen it. Uh, I think yep. the best stuff in the film is the stuff that deals with Patrick Stewart and Hugh Jackman's relationship. Um. um. I, yeah, well, yeah, no, that, and I'll, I got to say, I think the kid uh, really good. does, a, re, I think the kid really does a marvelous job. 
uh, with very little to say at the begin at the at the beginning. There you go. Uh, at least at the beginning, um, you know, when she's not talking, I think I think she does a really nice job she with the, creating a little a little character, and you know, you get the idea, um, and she does it well, and you know, she's pretty good at, at the action stuff too. So she is. No, she is. Credit where it's due. Absolutely. No, she is quite good in the film. Um, it really feels like No Country for Old Men, Children of yeah. Men. Yeah. Um, it, it's a good film. Um, it, it's definitely not for kids. <laughs> I'll, I'll say that. Um, yeah, I mean, it, I, I tried to, to sort of rank this uh, based on what it is and what it sets out to do, and I think it does a pretty good job. As it should be. Yeah. Well, what, what, I mean, let me ask you. What did you think of the uh, the villains as far as? I thought they were great. The Reavers. Really? I thought. Well, I thought the lead guy who was in Narcos, and I really didn't like him in Narcos. Is that Boyd Holbrook? Yeah, Boyd Holbrook. Holbrook? I thought he was fantastic. He seemed almost like Tom Hardy light to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in that he breathes a lot of charisma into just a total piece of shit character. Yep. Well, uh, I mean, for me, it was uh, yeah, I liked him. I thought he did a really great job. But I think that um, overall, the the uh, the villains just kind of were like, eh, okay, it's a bunch of guys and they fight and they don't really because it seems to me like um, the Holbrook character doesn't really seem to have a lot to do, even when in, even in the action sequences, no. other than just be you know. That character, you know, that that uh, southerny shit kicker character. No, I agree. Um, uh, so I mean, that kind of detracted from it, and then and then you bring in uh, uh, Richard Grant, uh, and then he's just kind of like uh, he's just kind of like another mastermind guy, but he, he doesn't really feel like he's in control. You don't really feel. I mean, you know, there's there's a there's a purpose to them, but you don't really feel. The plan, like for me, comic book movies and and action movies in general, um, and even the whole you know plethora of genres of, of films, uh, you know the 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 key to the the plot at least is you know the the villain's plan, right? I mean that's what drives the story usually. That's what usually keeps you you going, and it just doesn't really feel like it's there as much in this one for me. Um, I just feel like it's kind of eh, okay, and then when they pulled out that the big surprise uh, villain, I was just like, "Are you fucking kidding me? You couldn't come up with something better than that," uh, and that was kind of disappointing to me. I mean, I still liked it, uh, and I still liked it a lot, and I'm, I'm willing, to, you know, I'm willing and happy to to see it again and see how it fares uh, on repeat viewing. Now that you know, I, I kind of got through it the first time. And who knows, maybe it'll go up. Um, but I mean, the, the comparisons to, and I think I said this with Sammy um, last week or the week before, you know, the comparisons to, to stuff like uh, Pack and Paw and that, I just, I don't see that. Uh, no, I, I think uh, that's a bit of an oversell. Right? Yeah, yeah. I think people say that because of the brutality and the, the pun- kind of punishing nature and the fact that there really isn't, um, no one's absolved or, get, or, or can get out of the way of, of, cruelty um, mm-hmm. really um but I, I would disagree with you on the villains i think the villains purpose is really secondary to uh, the logan characters look at mortality and 
uh, the world crumbling around him and the well right but uh, I mean I guess I guess my point would be if you were going to do something like that then why would you really make it a, a, like a, an action movie at all you could do the whole thing almost like uh, like Children of Men which was well, you know I'll tell you why as a business, okay. as a studio I think you need to serve the studio's purpose and desires to have enough set pieces and action to make it um, a summary film and it is a comic sure. book film and I think to make it a moody quiet sure piece, but I, I put it Sure, but if they were going to take the, as many chances with it as they took to begin with, I mean, you could theoretically. I'm not, I'm saying theoretically. That's a big chance to take. I think. Oh, it is. It is. Because they can still sell it as as an action-packed, um, violent Logan film that people had been pining for from day one. Right, right. But they could also. Right, right. But I mean, yeah. Uh, I, I would agree with you that it would have been a more effective film if it had been quieter. I yeah. They could have, without being like. Take your foot off the gas a bit. I mm-hmm. don't think we need as much thrust um, with this film, but but I think for this kind of film, for me anyway, there's a, there's a ceiling anyway that I, I accept that it isn't going to go beyond beyond like a you know seven and a half out of ten, no matter what it does. Um, right, right. Unless it's really like you said, unless it will not it doesn't have to concede to. Um, studio insistence and doesn't have to compromise anything artistically, which I think this does. Obviously, have to concede some stuff, but I also yeah. would disagree on on the Richard E. Grant character again. But that's because I perceived um, their purpose, uh, what, what they needed to serve as, as characters, maybe a little differently than you. Okay, I thought Richard E. Grant was fantastic. I thought Holbrook was. Great. Oh no, he's he's a great. I, I think they they both give great performances. Merchant I just think great. that. Yeah, no, Steve Merchant is Caliban. That was really fantastic. Good. Yeah, he was. I mean, he was a like, that's a real uh, mutant character. Right? I think I remember seeing him. Yeah, yeah, he was a Morlock. Yeah, he was. That's right. That's right. I thought I was going to say. I thought he was a Morlock. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh-huh. Cool. 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 Yeah, it, it took me a couple. It took me a couple seconds because they said his name and it was so quiet. Like it, the way that maybe it was the 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 theater I was in and the speakers, but I was like, did they say Caliban? Is that Caliban? Because the first time I saw him, you know, see the pale face and the big eyes, and I'm like, that looks a hell of a lot like Caliban. Yeah. So, yeah, no, he was great. No, for sure. And, and listen, I'm not, I'm not. When I say that I didn't, I thought that they really, you know, didn't quite get there for me. I, I'm, I'm not saying that the performances weren't good. I think the performances were very good. Sure, but you, um, you just they just were a bit of a letdown for me yeah. in terms of, That's you know, enough to do. If you're yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, <clears throat> for me at least, I'm the kind of guy who. A lot of times when I'm watching a movie, whether it be horror, whether it be action, whether it be anything like that, there's there's usually a point in some of the in some of them where I start thinking to myself, "What's the villain doing right now when they're not on screen? When they don't have something to to, to attack for? Like like they take a break? Like did they go to the Dunkin' Donuts? Do they, you know, are, are they filing their taxes? I don't know. Um, and it, it's I I just sit there and I think about that, um, and especially when it feels more like they just show up uh, in order to hit the set piece goal of the film, and that was kind of how I felt. Yeah, oh, I and that was kind of how I felt here, and that was what was disappointing to me. You know, it should never feel well. It, ideally, it wouldn't feel quite like that for me. I should never be wondering that in my head. Although maybe I should. I don't know. Maybe that speaks to verisimilitude to think like, oh, these guys are real. Maybe what are they doing right now? I don't know. No, I think it's. I think it's. I want to be clear too. I think your gripe is accurate and it's fair, but. I wasn't as hung up on it because okay. I 
figured that was going to be the case anyway because of what I feel is the ceiling, that, the creative ceiling that these films are given. Sure. Again, I think that when, and I'd said this when I was speaking to someone, I've been very um, happy with some of the Marvel films mm-hmm. that have been more interested in being fun, i.e. Ant-Man. Like if, if, mm-hmm. if, if, if 12-year-old me was told you're going to prefer the Ant-Man and the Guardians of the Galaxy films to Wolverine, I would have said, you are nuts. <laughs> but I do, and part of that may be, you know, because I can watch it with my kids, and there's that, that enjoyment you get from seeing things with your kids. But, but I just feel like those films feel a little bit more liberated because of what their end goal is mm-hmm. um, and, and what they have to appease as far as the, the box is being ticked to the studio. I don't know. But I agree. I agree with your gripe. I just I don't place as much weight on it. That's all. Okay. Um, but the cast, yeah, the cast is good. Uh, yeah. The second half of our double, which is one I don't think you've seen, um, it's Get Out. No, I have not. Yeah. This, uh, this is the Peel, Peel director? Peel. The guy yeah. from Peel and Key or Key and Peel or whatever? Yeah. That's right, Jordan Peele. Um, now, I, I've said on this show I'm not a fan of them. I don't find them very funny. Um, people have tried. I've, I've started a thread on Facebook to say, give me the best Key and Peele skits. I win them <laughs> over. And, you know, the water went from ice cold to maybe tepid. sort of <laughs> Lukewarm. Yeah. Right? Um, so I just, you know, but then I saw the trailer for this. I thought, wow, this looks great. How come? How is this? It's one of those things you see sometimes with a film that comes out. You think, how has this not been really done before? Mm-hmm. Um, I like quite like this film. I, I can I don't have to be coy too much because it won't be on my list until next year. Um, Peel has a very bright future, I think, as a filmmaker. Um, he's he's riffing on some classics. Uh, his, his camera work feels sort of Kubrickian. Uh, he said Rosemary's Baby was a big influence. You know, you can see that when you see the film. The cast is excellent, um, mostly excellent. Um, this was a good film. I really love this film. This will be in my probably top 20 next year. Um, mm. the, I, I prefer the first half to the second half of the film. Um, the second half falls into more kind of over-the-top genre beats. Um when there's some reveals. <clears throat> now, mind you, I didn't watch the trailers for this film. I think I'd seen maybe one brief trailer. Um, but it, it feels very... Sh- the sh- like, this sounds weird, maybe, but it feels very shining to me in some ways. Um, but I sort of shining Rosemary's Baby. I don't know. It, it works wonderfully. I mean, a few things you kind of have to concede. Um, I'll just say that the teacup bit... I think you have to be willing to suspend disbelief a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I think the cast is very strong in this. Bradley Whitford's great. Catherine Keener classes up the thing. Allison Williams is good in her role. And Daniel Kaloya, who I didn't, I haven't seen anything. He's the, the male lead in this. He's British. He was in Sicario. Um, he's having a good few years here. Um, he's quite good in the film as the protagonist. And really the guy that we feel... He's us, um, obviously. The only misstep for me in the film in terms of acting, all this, the supporting, like Betty Gabriel, Marcus Henderson, and like Keith Stanfield, three of the Af- African-American actors that had supporting turns, were excellent. I think, and this is maybe going to sound like an overstatement, but for those that have seen the film, I think if those three 
don't give this weird, out-of-place, kind of ghost-like performance that they give, I don't think the film is as successful. I think a lot of credit has been given to Peel, and rightfully so, and uh, Kloya, if I'm pronouncing his name properly, as well as Williams and Keener and Whitford. But those three African-American actors really uh, take the ball across the finish line for me. I really, really like them in the film. One misstep I was going to say was Caleb Landry Jones, who plays the brother, the kind of shitty lacrosse-playing um, med student brother uh, of, of the female lead. Uh, he was really good in uh, a film I'd seen a couple of years ago. Um, was, I think last year it made my top 30 a real kick in the dick. Um, uh, Heaven Knows What, where he plays a homeless um, heroin addict. He's he's kind of his character in this is kind of grating and over the top and a little bit unbelievable to be as funny mm-hmm. as he is because he's he's a bit slight physically. Uh, I don't know, uh, it doesn't quite work for me. But um, yeah, otherwise this was this was a high recommend for me. It's got a lot to say, you know, in terms of society. And I was very worried that the film was going to end. Um, I don't want to confirm or deny, but I was very worried that it was going to end the way a certain George Romero film ends. Um, and it, uh, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Uh, that was a high recommend. I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, got a few more. I got two more. Tony Erdman, the uh, uh, <laughs> the darling of German. The one that's getting remade with Jack Nicholson. Oh, I guess that makes total sense. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, that makes total sense. This is long. It's almost three hours long. I don't know if I've seen too many German comedies before, but if you're going to make it... See, you and I have seen this before, I think, maybe even on the air, but I'm not a huge comedy guy, but I really am a sucker for that European art house, absurdist, yeah. dry yep. humor. Yep. And this is all of those things. Um, it's a bit... Shaggy for its own good, ironically considering the poster and what that that whole scene. But there's some pretty brave, pretty <laughs> some pretty funny stuff in this film, and I think it does have a heart, and it it says some things genuinely. Um, it, it's good. It, it's quite good. Um, Sandra Hewler gives a very. And that sounds weird to say. Someone gives a brave film. In a, a brave film, a brave performance in a comedy. Mm-hmm. But if you've seen the film, she hosts a party. And that party scene um, is very brave. So when you see that, that would make total sense. Um, and then her dad in the film, Peter Simonischek, who will be the Jack Nicholson role. Yeah. He's fantastic in the film. Um yeah, this was very good. Very, very good stuff. A little shaggy, but otherwise good. Uh, finished off my week or two weeks with Back to the Future Part 3, which I'd never seen. So some of these big tentpole, or not tentpole, but these big kind of summer franchises, um, it's been interesting to see the, the final uh, of the trilogies with my kids, uh, as I did with Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade, but that much I'd never seen prior to seeing with them. And now this, and I have to say... This is a nice addition to the world and to the trilogy. It's a great way to close it. I really enjoyed it. Um, so more than part two? Definitely more than part two, and I think you would really like part three. Okay, cool. I think cool. you would quite like it. it. It world builds, and Mary Steenburgen's in it. She's in a supporting role. Um, I think that Thomas Wilson, Biff, 
this is his best turn in the series. Um, he's really good. Richard Dysart is in it, and I'm used to seeing him with a nose ring in The Thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. James Doc. Tolkien. Yeah. James Tolkien's having fun. Uh, it, it, it was a good way to end the series, for sure. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's what we've been watching. Um, cool. Why don't we take a short break and come back, and what do you want to do first? Uh... That doesn't matter. Uh, we can go chronological if you want. Mm-hmm. It's all good. Let's do that. We okay. A short break. You know, I've said this before, but whenever I say, there's two things I just want to say apropos of nothing but filling up time and making our show longer than it already is. <laughs> um, whenever you say went from, like you're always in your, um, what you've been watching, you say went from, you know, yeah, yeah. Berlin to Jodamato. Yeah. Whenever you say that went from line, I always think you're about to say went from ashy to classy. Like uh, Biggie, <laughs> who just died. Because there's a famous line in the song where he said, I went from ashy to classy. I just think Todd's going to say he went from ashy to classy. I highly doubt I'm ever going to say those words. <laughs> but I appreciate what you're saying. And then uh, the other thing is, whenever I say we're going to take a short break, I always in my head want to say a long walk off a short bridge. <laughs> For some reason, I don't know why. I'm gonna make like a yeah. get out of here. That's Biff Tannum once said. Ooh. So yeah, we are gonna take a short break. No, no long walks off short bridges. It's cold in Pennsylvania and Canada. We're gonna stay inside. Okay. We're gonna be. <laughs> we're gonna be right back. I fall in love too easily I fall in love too fast I fall in love too terribly hard For love to ever last My heart should be Cause I've been fooled in the past But still I fall in love so easily I fall in love too fast Back to the Gentleman's Guide. Uh, full disclosure, we've just, in heartbreaking 
fashion lost uh, a really good review of Jess Franco's Venus and Furs. Um, we're going to re-record this. <laughs> this review, it's uh, 7 a.m., which is really 6 a.m. on minimal sleep. Oh, boy. So if this review seems rushed, we're going to apologize in advance. Uh, we covered some good ground, and this added, is added to that library of... Uh, Bermuda Triangle Ghost Reviews alongside Candy Tangerine Man and Conquest, uh, at least the original one was, so it's too bad. But uh, I'll synopsize this film, and we're going to get into it for the second time. Um, uh, Venus and Furs, 1969, directed by one Jess Franco. Um, and, of course, uh, I don't even have the IMDb open at this point. Um, basically, Venus and Farsi? No. Uh <laughs> Um, Venus and Furs is 1969, Jess Franco, and uh, basically a trumpeter uh, is on the beach, and he finds a body, and Franco, Jess Franco-isms ensue. Yes. Um, so let's get into this. You picked this. You'd never seen it. We've often discussed how Franco is a guy who, while prolific, um, isn't always um, too, great. too great, the king of the screenshot in some ways. Um, yeah, let's uh, let's get into this. Okay. Alrighty. Um, the, uh, the film is really captured by the very first shot, the camera tilting up the length of the quote-unquote Venus, uh, the Maria Rome character. And, uh, you know, you got the undies, the high heels, the fur coat, no top, she's smoking a cigarette, uh, and, you know, playing the Manfred Mann score uh, as it goes up there. And then we get the titles, and that's, yeah, I mean, that's that's a pretty good summation of the, uh, the film uh, as far as the style, as far as uh, the, uh, the atmosphere of it, partially. Um, and then we cut to, uh, to uh, Jimmy Darren on the beach, digging up his horn. Um, <laughs> not not in that way, but like an actual his actual trumpet. Which why it was buried, we don't really we're never really told. But we're supposed to we go along with it because it's it's sort of dream logic with this film really yes. uh, kind of deals in. And uh, he drags the woman out of the uh, the surf, who turns out to be uh, Wanda, the Maria Rome character, who he remembers he had met previously uh, at a party hosted by one Klaus Kinski as Ahmed. Uh, where she was uh, privy to a certain special party room uh, along with uh, a predatory lesbian named Olga and a predatory Dennis Price uh, as some guy named Cap uh, along with Kinski. And uh, certain things happen that uh, Darren witnesses uh, that uh, kind of uh, goes back to... uh, how he feels about Wanda and this this sort of obsession that he has with her. Um, you get the mannequin challenge at the Kinski party at first, and it, this is another one of those things where we really start to see uh, Franco's style, uh, you know, because he couldn't afford, obviously, any kind of, uh, you know, elaborate, expensive visual effects or you know, any of that sort of thing. Uh, he just has the, the characters not be moving except for a, a select few, uh, and then he focuses on the ones that he wants to focus on, um, and it's a nice little—it's a nice little effect. It's, you know, and it gives you a lot of uh, the atmosphere and the feel of the the film overall. Um, 
the uh, the Maria Rome character, uh, as I said, he uh, Darren drags her out of the surf, and she's a lot like the mythical Venus uh, coming out of the sea, although not on a half shell. And uh, you know she's dead, but he feels the connection to her, um, and that's really key to the uh, the film is the connection that he has to her, the obsession that he feels with her, um, and how that relates to his life and his music and everything else, because it's you know um, as he says. Um, uh, a musician without horns like a man without words um and that's he's really summed up here uh as we all know frankel was a a big uh, jazz guy yeah um he appears at least twice in this film uh in the uh in uh darren's uh in darren's band so um uh the movie's really highly stylized um in a lot of ways the compositions and the performances and uh, the, you know, I think you get that right from the beginning, and not just the, uh, not just that that shot of the tilt up on uh, on Maria Rome, but then as we were saying, you know, previously, uh, there's the the hands, uh, Darren's hands tapping kind of the silhouette on the glass, yeah. yeah, and it's really nice. It's a really good shot, uh, and it really uh, you know plays into it. You get, uh, let me see here. You get uh, Rio at Carnival Time with a lot of travelogue footage, which is a bit much in how often it's used, although it's nice to get the flavor of the uh, the area. It's always nice to see that kind of thing a little bit. And production uh, value for Jess, let's be honest. Sure. I think because sure. of a limited and, budget, he was adding what he could. Uh, oh, absolutely. 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 I just, you know, my, my gripe is always that, you know, once or twice is okay, you know. Once we're actually filling up space that would be better served with, you know, almost anything else, then it starts to become a problem for me. Yeah, he um, goes back to that well a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but Darren is well. First of all, we, we need to to say here uh, the James Darren character is excruciatingly bland. Uh, Darren Dreadful. himself. Yeah, Darren himself, uh, you know, was more or less a TV actor, as far as I'm aware. Uh, and as uh, as you stated, um, yeah, that, that kind of suited him well. Yeah. He's he's just really really bland, and the, the, he's not aided at all uh, by the uh, the voiceover, which runs throughout the film. And again, I, I understand why it was done, uh, the budgetary reasons and or you know the well primarily primarily the budgetary reasons and or the uh, the uh, multicultural. Yes. Uh, collection of the uh, the cast uh, in the same way that they would do things in uh, in uh, uh, Italy uh, where they would record you know everybody sp- they would uh, shoot the film without sound everybody speaking their natural language and then they would just dub whatever language they need to dub afterwards um, so I, I get the reasoning why economically uh, unfortunately yeah Darren with his his blandiness uh, just doesn't really. Uh, it doesn't really help things, um, although it does, in a certain way, add to a little bit of the noir-ish uh, flavor of this thing and the whole femme fatale, you know, the the femme fatale thing. Which, interestingly, uh, speaking of noir, uh, it comes back to uh, there's a series of uh, of shots of of portraits in the film uh, paintings. Uh, and they they all look very very similar in terms of uh, either artist or character. I'm not sure which or either if either is true. I, I could say, but uh, it, you know it, it relates back to this noir angle of um, you know these dead women 
uh, and the men who want to possess them in movies uh, like Lara or uh, you know the the whole artist thing uh, mm-hmm. in terms of movies like Scarlet Street, uh, all that that sort of thing, and that you know you get that. And you know how these guys want to possess these these women, these idealized beauties, uh, the whole angle of death, and uh, you know uh, that that kind of um, oddball, you know, kind of perverse obsession uh, that a lot of guys in uh, in film noir in those scenarios uh, you know, tend to have, um, and that also it relates to the idea of reflections uh, in the film which you know there's a whole lot of shots of uh, of mirrors going on here and it gives you that uh, that sort of uh, you know reflected mirror image the opposite but the same uh, sort of thing which relates to the character of um, Robert McNair the Rita character who is you know the exact opposite of uh, Rome's character you know uh, uh Rita has short hair. Uh, Wanda has longer hair. Uh, you know, one's white, one's black. One's alive, one's dead. One symbolizes love. One symbolizes revenge. Uh, so they really kind of uh, they go hand in hand uh, as a nice little uh, uh, dichotomy there, a little juxtaposition. You get some nice slow mo uh, shots whenever uh, whenever James is following uh, Wander around. Yeah, you do. Which adds into adds into the uh, the surreal quality of the film. Um, the film it reminded me very quickly of two different uh, stories, uh, which I don't want to say the names of the titles of without giving them away completely. Although I will give you the hint of two names uh, of uh, people involved with them. One would be Clint Eastwood, the other would be Ambrose Bierce, um, and you know, figure it out from there if you are so inclined. Um, let's see. Oh, uh, yeah. No, we we talked about the the Rita character and McNair. She really, you know, she does a really fantastic job with very little. Unfortunately, she also has uh, not enough to do her justice. Um, as far as the character, she's very, very passive. She's very kind of in the corner, um, and I think that it kind of takes away some of the emotional beat of the story or an angle it could have been uh, in or in uh, in not having her be a little more uh, directly involved in the film. I mean, she's really kind of like an arm piece for Darren, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, and, and she does have some emotional weight to her arc so to speak if you want to call it that um but at the same time yeah i I think that she was deprived of uh of really getting to to stand out in the film more uh more than she does uh and although she does get to sing the uh the venus and furs theme song which again uh it's 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 okay in small doses uh but to hear it as often as uh as it's as it's used is a bit a bit much, yep. uh, at least for my taste. Um, others, I'm sure, would would disagree. <laughs> you know, have it on loop at their house. And that's yeah, fine. that's fine. Um, do, 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 James so bland. Yes, he is. Uh, <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. There's the uh, the scene where uh, Wanda visits with the predatory lesbian Olga uh, in her uh, her photo studio, and again, it uh, you know there's a lot of shots where. Rolls of film are 
prominent in the foreground and in the compositions and again relates to the whole portrait you know mirror um you know doubling capturing the obsession with death kind of uh, angle that is uh, is clearly very present in the film um do uh one does eventually reveal her plan to uh james but it's undercut for me by the uh, the voiceover and the footage of them just kind of like hugging in the carriage it just felt it felt a little too um well on top of the, the bland narration it just was a little too like like uh first datey kind of imagery to to go against uh what uh what uh wanda's uh plan is yeah uh, you finally get to see Klaus Kinski uh, as a sultan, and uh, you complete with turban and scimitar. Complete with turban, scimitar, not Probably the one in his hands, but the one, the one in his belt. Yes. Uh, which I guess you could also say the same thing about both of them, anyway. Yes. Um, you could always put it in your belt. Uh, <laughs> it's um, it's a weird little story because you know he kind of like. It all, it almost feels like a, a, a vanity thing for uh, for Kinski because he is you know he, he kind of like stops the film dead so that he could tell this story uh, about this Sultan who I, I think he said was uh, a, a, an ancestor of his yeah and uh, yeah it's about him and this slave girl that he, he was obsessed over and of course uh, you know the the characters Kinski and, and Rome. Uh, wind up playing the characters in this uh this old flashback story and of course you know in, in a, a clever way it does become its own thing in relating to uh the film directly uh but it starts off with like you know i was a, you know my ancestor was a sultan da, 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 da. and you get into it and you're like ah oh, fuck he's doing this just so that he can put on the costume and you know, yes that guy. um but it does it does come around then and actually relate directly to the movie, which is nice uh, to see that it wasn't just a waste of uh, of time or just a complete uh, look at me, look at me kind of thing. Um, you get an undercrank car chase in there, which, uh, as I've stated previously on many occasions, is only good. Uh, undercranking is only really good in. Um, in Gilligan's Island shows, um, or the the most or Benny Hill. Severely, yeah, oh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's you got you got to go with the uh, the undercranked slash yakety sax combo. So, <laughs> yeah, it has to be wacky yakety too. Sax, is it really the same thing? No, precisely. Sure, you got you got the sexy police women with the the thigh highs on and all that sort of thing. Sure, but um, without the yakety sax, it just isn't the same. <laughs> um, there's uh, Franco. For as stylish as the as the film is, and it is very stylish and it is very nice looking, by and large, uh, you know, thoughtful uh, on his part, more so than you would think from some of his other films. Um, he does make the, in my opinion, mistake of using very harsh uh, color uh, color filters over the the finale of the film. Um, it, it just it kind of makes the the images not. It makes them indistinct, and it doesn't really add anything. It becomes a little bit too of its time psychedelic and not as a little too on the nose um, I for, think my, for my taste. I don't think it could get out of its own way, and I think it is very much of its time, and, and it can't help but 
wallow in the psychedelia of its time, um, frankly, you know, I, but I would agree completely. Well, but I, I think that up to this point, up to that point, it was much more understated. Yeah, than, no, true, than true. Had been uh, up true. until then, so that that kind of detracts from me. Although, I mean, you, you kind of get where this movie is going from from Jump Street. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see, uh, covered that. Uh, Man, I feel like I talked a hell of a lot more the first time around, and I'm going over the same notes. Um, no, I don't know what a heartbreak. I think that's, we had a good conversation the first time around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I hit all the same things. Yeah, mirrors, uh, the similarities between uh, Rita and um, and Wanda. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much all I have. Uh, it's just, it's a good film. Um, in the realm of uh, in the realm of Franco, it's probably one of his better ones. No, it's definitely one of his better ones. I'm going to say that. Yeah. Uh, it's certainly one of his more complete films in terms of uh, actually, you know, having a beginning, middle, and end, and all of them uh, fitting um, in a certain way. I like that he he really deals with the uh, the ideas of obsession. Uh, and the angle that he's coming at it from, you know, him being a, a jazz musician, there's obviously the angle of uh, of uh, Jimmy and the way that he feels about Wanda and how his inability to have her or to to have him or have her have him uh, kind of messes with his uh, his musical abilities. They play that a little bit at the beginning, um, and then it, it just kind of fades into the background uh, because, you know, obviously. He, Franco's done uh, doing that that solo, uh, so he's he kind of moves on from there. Um, it, but he's still he, he it's in his blood, uh, and I like that this thing this movie has more themes in it than you might expect at the first time. It's not it's not strictly uh, a revenge film. It's not not at all. Film. It's not strictly. Uh, a dream film uh, although it is you know all of those things um, and it does them all it does them all very well uh, or as, as well as can be but, uh, I think that the themes that Franco puts in here are more thought out than you might at first expect having heard of, having heard of um you know Franco's reputation. It's not as slapdash as some of his later work would it's become. It's not. It's not. It's not at all. Um, although there are, you know, so there is some slapdashery. Sure, there is. Sure, but I, you know, if I'm being perfectly honest about it, I think that the slapdashery in this really extends more from the budget than anything else. Well, budget, and I think the jazz um, feel of the film, right? And and the, and the '60s, like I was saying, the first time we did this, more the six, more the Japanese 60s, jazzy, more the 60s and the and the budget than the '60s jazz. jazz, French New Wave, you know, deconstructing oh, yeah. film yeah, yeah. language. I think all these things was an exciting time in Europe and as a European filmmaker. So, yeah, yeah, you know, totally. Um. And um Sorry. No, no, uh, that's all right. Uh, yeah, no, that's pretty much uh, that's pretty much all I can think of off the top of my head. Um, yeah, yeah, no, that's all I got on it. It's a good movie. Yeah, I'll roll through my notes. Uh, like we had yeah. said, Jess Franco 
is a filmmaker where this is as good a place to start as any. For me, this is probably his most famous film. I think you said 99 Women is another one. Yeah. Vampiros Lesbos are the two, three maybe. And I had said to you, and I don't want to forget to mention it, Bloody Moon is my favorite of his films. Um, it doesn't really feel like his film in some ways. But I, I'd heard, and actually I guess one high note of having to record this review a second time is I found out in the meantime that this film... Um, was conceptualized or inspired by a conversation Jess Franco had with Chet Baker. Ah. Um, originally, it was going to be a, a biracial love story, but the distributors felt that wouldn't wash, uh, so they rewrote it as a surreal thriller. Um, so there you have it. Ah. Um, yeah, and Klaus Kinski replaced Rosano Brazzi in the film. I don't know how much better it would have been. I think Kinski is sort of the... Um, the he is Euro he's cult. Yeah. He's also Euro cult film of the era personified. Yeah. Him and Udo Kier, <laughs> pan European sort of culty productions. They tended to to partake in a lot of them. Um, I always associate Franco with Roland. I tend to think Roland's a little bit of a better filmmaker, though. Certainly, actually, a lot better. Uh, not to discredit Jess, because I think there's, there's some good stuff going on. Um, we didn't mention, I don't think this time, the Man- Manfred Mann, Sans Earth Band, scores the film and does a very, very good job, save for the kind yeah. of heavy-handed kind of um, proclaiming titular. the titular theme. I know how you love to say that word. Yeah. <laughs> you know you sound just like her. I do. Um, there's phallus everywhere, which is true to form for Jess. Um, this film's as much about state of mind and visuals and the immersion of those two things. And I think you get to see above and beyond the French New Wave some of the influences that really came through for me were Hitchcock and the unreliable narrator, um, Antonioni, certainly. And um, as I well, said, poor man's Antonioni. Poor, yes. yes. Let's let's be fair. To yes. both Michelangelo and Jess, yes. uh, and say poor man's Antonioni, um, yes. and even Melville. I said Le Samurai. Uh, this film feels like it's been. There were some things that Jess, not sort of a direct line that you could do A to B, but I think there was a few things that Jess loved from Le Samurai that he put through the Jess Franco filter um, in this film, like you mentioned. Um, as I, I'm going to go back to the well, just like Jess goes back to his well with the joke I made on the last uh, review, uh, much like we tend to say at Horror Hound, um, our main character says in this, I tried to remember why I buried my horn. Um, and boy, does he bury it. Um, buried, buried it deep. Yeah, buried it deep. Uh, and of course, in this, we get the rusty trombone's cousin, the sandy trumpet. So. <laughs> yes, me too, Will. Yes, that's gritty. That is gritty. Um, you were you were saying about um, you were saying about Melville, and uh, I I think that it's interesting along with um, specifically the samurai, like we were saying, but in in, in terms of how uh, Melville was a very American obsessed, um, a, a very American obsessed filmmaker, and Jess Franco was a very jazz obsessed filmmaker. And jazz was, to my knowledge, a specifically American yes. uh, musical form. So I think yeah. in that way, there's a, a certain connection between the two that kind of 
again, not A to B, but uh, certainly in there uh, in the influence that uh, that the things had on him. And of course, I think that Melville would have liked, you know, Melville liked jazz as well. So totally. Um, so I, I think that that's that's certainly something to to consider, at least in the back of your head, not necessarily an overt thing. Uh, per se, no, but it's an but interesting talking point to look at how, through the eyes and and country and culture of origin, that these two filmmakers processed uh, through the filter and were influenced by jazz and American culture and American film that preceded their careers. Exactly. What the end result was for each of those filmmakers. Yeah. I yeah, think exactly. makes for a fascinating discussion. It would make an interesting blog piece uh, or t- you know conversation or an article. Um, the 60s Rio stuff I like more than you you know I'm a big fan of Black Orpheus I, I love 60s Brazil I think it's beautiful uh, jazz jazz I was going to say jazz Franco I'm sure he wouldn't have minded jazzy Jeff jazzy yeah, jazzy, DJ, jazzy jazz, jazz. Uh, made the most out of this sort of and you had mentioned this and I agree completely this also feels very um, of its time from the perspective of being travelogue uh, Mondo Cane meets French New Wave, um, meets sort of uh, fantastical Italian sex films. Um, And, you know, one thing we didn't mention from a technical perspective is that Jess Franco never met a hard cut he didn't love. (laughs) (laughs) Dude loved the hard cut. Um, Let me me ask you this. I mean, we've talked about McDare. Yeah. Uh, What's your opinion? I, I know we really haven't talked about Rome. Uh, Maria Rome at all, uh, at least not that I can remember. Uh, what? How would you consider her in this in this film? I, I think she's quite good. I think the theme, and I, you know, I think as I had said, um, McNair is absolutely. Um, that's James. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm going to back up for a sec. James Darren's character, Jimmy Logan, is a very slight, fragile version of David Warbeck. Um, as I said, <laughs> devoid of, of much uh, charisma, but um, he's almost a vessel. And I think, really, as with Fellini and Russ Meyer, Franco's fixated with women and women of a certain, maybe not a certain kind, but I think there's a certain air about them. Um, and then sometimes the contrast between um, certain types of women, but women in general, maybe more than a specific type. Um, I think Rome is quite good in the film um she's quite beautiful oh yeah uh, who is the there's one other actress in here not um <sighs> well the, the woman who plays olga mm, i don't know if that's who i was gonna say it would have had to uh, have been we're running out of women right yeah i think there's only three margaret lee let me just take a look here There was uh, the, the, the Barbara McNair, Maria no, Rome, Margaret, Margaret Lee was all good, yeah. Yeah, Margaret Lee, I quite like in the film. I think she. What well, more for? Um, Did you see her IMDb photo? No. I should, <laughs> shouldn't I? Uh, circus star Margaret Lee. Oh, I did see that. I did see that. I don't think it even. Adds a glamorous note to the centering at a winter quarters rehearsal in American International's mystery thriller Psycho Circus. Yeah, amazing. No, she's she's uh, she's a looker, um, but I think the women do a good job in the film. And I think you have to look at man. Here's a who's that? Annette Stroyberg. Who the fuck is she? She's gorgeous. Where are we looking? 
I'm going to send you a picture of some Swedish actress I just found. Okay. Good lord. Um, it's very safe, but uh, very beautiful. Yeah. Anyway, I think I like that um, Franco tended to revisit a lot of things in his film, much like a lot of filmmakers do, right? Their fixations, their obsessions, and... Um, but I think you get a lot of things on display from him in this. Now, we get to see Uncle Jess on piano in this film, and we talked about his love of jazz, and um, so it's nice to see, and I don't know how early on in his filmography this film is. Um, I can go back and look, certainly, but I feel like um, a lot of his uh, obsessions in life and so forth, I'm going to send you that picture now, um, are certainly evident uh, through this film. I'm going to look quickly to see where this falls in his filmography. He probably made a film certainly from about 62, I'm going to guess. Let's see how far back he goes. Oh, wow. The 50s. He was making documentary shorts and screenplays and so forth. Um, yeah, so I guess... Let me look at his directorial debut because I have, I have to feel like this was early enough on in his career that where he he was definitely putting everything on display so yeah okay so he was still yeah directing stuff all the way back to the 50s Orloff was seven years prior he did a Rafifi film it was a Rafifi in Spain I think Rafifi Rafifi I think I have this film actually but I don't have it with subtitles yeah it is a Rafifi film so there you go there was a Melville connection then ah so there you go. Um, well, no, Rafifi wasn't Melville. Oh my God! It was it was Jules, Jules, Jules de Sand, yeah, or Dassin. I'm Frenching it up. Um, but 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 if he was into Dassin and Rafifi, you sure. can bet your money he was into Melville. Sure. Sure. Um, I will give our, our main dude credit for wearing double denim, uh, as slight as he is. I keep going to Leon Lies. Filmography, and it's not going to give me very much fruit when it comes to talking about this film. Um, okay, so yeah, I, I mentioned it again. I got to go back to the joke. Well, it's two for Tuesdays. Um, he can play <laughs> trumpet in a band while Michael J. Fox plays guitar. Um, we mentioned well, just would they still be just too darn loud? Yeah, no kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know that a four-piece jazz band's ever played a smaller room than the one they play in this. Um, I wish Jess had have done more, uh, had more jolly in his filmography because I think there's some stuff in here that is pretty strong. Like there's some moments of suspense and atmosphere that are added in that, and the Manfred Mann score works wonderfully when it's not. But it's not that. It's quite good. It's a quite. It's a quite a respect. A, a pleasant surprise score-wise. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's a sensuality. There's un- some unnerving stuff. Sound design is solid. I think considering the budget. Well, and I think, and I don't know if we mentioned this again on this on the second go round, but the the uh, the revenge aspects of it are not exactly what you would expect them to be. Correct. Uh, it's a very subdued. Uh, sort of uh, way of going about it where it's it's uh, you know I would say thematically it's sort of that reflection again it's the reflection of you know what happened and uh, what that's reflecting back on the characters in and of themselves yeah um, 
and I think that plays out throughout the film. So it, just, just to put that out there, I mean, in case you're thinking that this is a little bit more uh, skanky or, or something than uh, or Paul than it doesn't it have as much is. of a thrust as that is a good word for it. it yeah. There's not as really any thrust, and that's just his mo is to be thrust free for the most part. <laughs> um, Barbara McNair, we haven't talked a lot about this time around. Um, she's wonderful as Rita. She's the strength of the film for me. All the women really are the strength of the film. It's weird because Darren, as sort of a vessel, you know, I, I can't help but compare him to someone like uh, Nino Castelnuovo from Camille 2000. And Nino did a much better job of, despite being a bit vanilla, and yeah. the film not really being about him, despite <laughs> seeing a lot of it through his eyes, I just think he, D- Darren's very bland, but I don't want to beat that. You know, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting because you know I was thinking about this last night before I, I went to bed for like two hours, and yeah. um, <laughs> it's, it's amazing. It's amazing to me uh, the guys that they get to be in uh, a lot of these Gialli and, and Euro thrillers and that sort of thing. Oh, guys man. like Anthony Steffen and George Hilton. And you know, outside well, of guys pretty like good, though. and Franco Nero, Hilton's these guys good. to me are so bland. Well, so and, and yeah, and so Warbeck and plan. Christopher George and yeah, Christopher George brings a little bit of liveliness to the proceedings, well, but yeah, no, I but think he does. I, I agree. Um, and even but, I mean, by by and large, I mean, they, they just they just kind of have these guys who are just you know, they're just guys. They're just dull they're ass. There. They're yeah. placeholders, you know. They are placeholders. They and are I totally. think that, that that certainly carries through to this one, to this film. Yeah, no, you're right. It, that, that lo- a long line of all the, the bland leading men in Euro genre film. God, that would be a long list. Oh, my God. Um, why, isn't there, why isn't there a, a, a crack.com fucking list of that? There should be a list. It would be a long list. It would be a very long list. Um, you Top talk, 50. Yeah, for real. You could do that. Uh, there is a um, Friedkin-esque car chase you mentioned. Yep. Um, it, ain't, it ain't Ronan. It ain't Ronan, that's for sure. Um, I love, you know, one scene I really love. It's very atmospheric and it's kind of unnerving. Is the scene in the bathtub with the blood and the water and the yeah, whispering? Yeah, I really like that. That's what I mean. Franco, it just it seems like you know what he just he's like, Meh, whatever. Like, but he yeah. sets the table so well with some moments of atmosphere and dream, really intense, visceral moments. Um, but he then he just kind of goes off and does a little freewheeling kind of jazzy stuff, and you know that's cool, that's his mo. But I don't want anyone to say he's a hack because I've we've seen some hack filmmakers in our day. I just think he wasn't as interested. He has he had a more of a laissez-faire attitude to conventional filmmaking and storytelling. Um, I'm gonna stop rambling though because we still have another film to review. Let me kick it over to you for make or breaks, MVTs, and score. All right. Uh, make or break for me is Ahmed's party. Uh, I think it does a nice little summation of uh, the style, the plot, uh, introduction to uh, what we're going to be exploring in the film, uh, and it uh, it does it quite well. Uh, MVT is for me Franco. Uh, he shows a bit more strength, a bit more care, and a bit more cohesiveness in this film than he does in a lot of his other movies. Um, so you know, much credit for him to be able to pull together this as well as he does. Uh, the score for me is a seven out of ten. Nice. Um, my make or break is the opening. There's a really great. Sh- there's some, the voiceover stuff really thrusts us into the dreamy world with the buried trumpet and <laughs> uh, the silhouette of the hands on the blue screen and 
It just it kind of sets the table for us nicely. Um, my MVT. I was going to go with Franco, and I almost did on even like more now than I did the first time, um, because there's a lot of good things going on, and and this does set him up as sort of Franco as auteur, I think, as we'd said the first time around. Um, but I'm going to go with Barbara McNair because I don't know when I'm going to get to get to give it to her again. Uh, interestingly, she was Mrs. Tibbs, and they call me Mr. Tibbs. Um, yeah, she's really good, and and you know she provides sort of this as much as she can given the material, sort of this melancholy, uh, this tragedy, this there's is it a blue heart to her that much like someone like Vanetta McGee and the Great Silence, um, that will last or, or linger with me when I think about this film uh, alongside uh, a turban clad uh, Kinski. Um, yeah, and my score for the film is the same as yours. It's a 7 out of 10. And I could have also went with Manfred Mann, like I said. Uh, very, very cool score. Um, but that's it. It's a 7 out of 10. We're going to take a short break. We're going to pray to the gods that this is recorded. Yes, please. And Because uh, third time won't be a charm. Third time will be we're going to bed. We were too old for this shit. <laughs> uh, we're taking a short break and a long walk off a short pier. We will be right back. show it's time for our final review of the morning noon or night that you're listening it is johnny toes a hero never dies 
this is one I had meant to cover on the show for quite some time. I never got around to it. Uh, eight years on, here we are, finally talking about it. 1998. Um, this was one of the first Toe films I'd seen. Alongside Running Out of Time, uh, Breaking News, Full Time Killer, and this one, I think. I kind of went through a real run of films for his. Um, of his. Um, let me synopsize this for you. I think I have one open. Uh, Jack is the big brother in Mr. Yam's gang. Martin is the big brother in Mr. Fong's gang. Both are men of honor, and there is a strong bond between them, but that bond is sundered when Yam declares war on Fong. Um, a tried killer must stand by his boss no matter what, so the two... Uh, or, you know what, I'll leave it at that. Um, you said, uh, I'm going to lead on this, so I'm going to lead on this. Um, it's been a while since we've covered a Hong Kong film, and I actively wanted to cover something more world filmy than... You know, we tend to get into a lot of American stuff and then some Italian stuff, and I just feel like as much as I we can get into some Asian stuff, <coughs> it's a good thing. Um, Hong Kong film isn't what it once was uh, because of the handover and increasing censorship and uh, influence from uh, the mainland. Um, Toe has been... I've had the distinct pleasure of, of having Toe present to... Um, present election one and two, which for me is still the high watermark of his career uh, here in Toronto a few years back. And he, he was vocal about saying how um, he had felt that um, that wasn't good for Hong Kong or its identity or uh, artistically. Um, but uh, now, for me, I'll be forthright in saying when I look back at this, I think there's a mark where. Uh, Toe went from being a good filmmaker to a great filmmaker, and this is still in his good film filmmaker run for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what he's doing as a film... I'm going to save that. that. That woman is unbelievable. That Swedish actress? <laughs> I mean, she's, like, unbelievable. Not to digress here. I'm going to... Hey, what was the name again? Annette Stroyberg, I think. Let me see. Mm. Yeah, that one photo is exceptional, but... Oh, wait, no, maybe that's not her, then. Anyway, you know what? I I can't spend a toe review talking about Swedish actresses. Well... I could. But but, uh, I feel like, you know, there was a time when I started watching Johnny Toe films, and Full Time Killer was the first one, which is unlike a lot of his other films, because it's very cartoony and very self-aware, and it's a kind of a poking fun at the heroic bloodshed and the, the machismo and the homoeroticism and the melodrama that the, the genre was known for. Um, I feel, and I'm going to go back and look at where this falls in his filmography, I still feel like this is Johnny Toe uh, working as good filmmaker, not great filmmaker. Would you this, is jo- this is Johnny Toe working through the filter of John Woo. Oh, absolutely it is. It's very um, much... And, and it's listen, it, it, it's good. I mean, because he gets the elements of it right. I think that what he does is he he has the same elements that Wu has. He just has them in different proportions. So his his set pieces aren't as stylized, although he uses a lot, a lot of the same techniques. Like he distills it, I think, a lot. This he I, does. You know what's ironic? Sorry to cut you off. I don't want to forget That's to right. mention this. You want to talk about a filmmaker who is unbelievably 
in love with and indebted to Melville. Oh yeah, this is yeah. your guy now. Toe right down to the uh, right down to the um, uh, the Ching Wan Lao um, character. Martin. Well, totally. And let's say this, and then I'll let you finish your point. Forgive me. Is yes, this film? And and to bring it full circle, Wu's biggest influence on his career was Melville. So, mm-hmm. and that's just that wonderful thing of looking at the outer rings of the tree and the ripple effects and seeing cinematically how things sort of work and the influences and all that. You have this film, which is riffing on Wu and distilling it with an economy that Melville would approve of because Melville mm-hmm. was very much about mm-hmm. stripping down and distilling things to their purest form. So this is Johnny Toe... Stripping things down, distilling them, distilling what Wu did when Wu was riffing on and looking at it through a Hong Kong cultural perspective of what Melville did 20 years prior. Mm-hmm. It is, uh, absolutely. And um, what I was saying was that he does it in inverse proportions and he, Toe, does it in, in, in inverse proportions to, uh, to how Wu does it. Yes. And he plays up more of the uh the melodramatic angles yes uh than than Wu does which i think is both in this particular case is both a good and a bad thing yeah uh, as far as the film goes it's good for getting the film to resonate emotionally more than it does from just that that kind of uh, dick swinging uh, hitman angle um and it's more about um i mean that's that's like the emotional heart of the film is is what happens after uh, certain uh, certain uh, things take place, and then it's also a bad thing because that's when the film really kind of slows down. Yes, and it kind of it kind of hits the dip, uh, and it's a pretty long dip for the uh, the film to take. Um, so it kind of kills what what pace it has, uh, but it's also I mean like I said it's essential to uh, to this film having what impact it has I think. Oh, I would agree 100. Um, percent It's funny. When uh, when you said the dip, <laughs> oh, you say, put I hand, put my hand up I... on your hip. When I when dip, I you dip, dip, we dip. We dip. <laughs> oh. Man, I got tired. I got tired doing Freak Nasty and uh, Biggie lyrics. Uh, <laughs> where this is coming from, man? Um, Ashy the Classy. Yes, Ashy the Classy. Um, the Gentleman's Guide, bringing uh, the ash to the class since 1977. <laughs> No, I would agree with you 100%. 100%. Um, and the other thing, too, that I feel like um, is the melodrama is cartoonish. Um, I think you need to know the statement of intent and what... I was going to say Melville. I, what uh, Johnny was going for with this film. Because I think to see this film without any context, I don't think you can appreciate it as much. I okay. think you can I think you can appreciate it as a genre film. You could. But I think it enhances appreciation to know what he was going for and what he was riffing on and gently poking, not poking fun at, but lovingly, winkingly. Is winkingly even a word? I believe so. Winkingly homaging. Mm-hmm. Uh, down to the jazz club. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The first thing I thought, like, as soon as I saw the, the saxophone jazz club thing, I, th- I thought instantly... Of uh, tequila and hard boiled. Yeah, yeah. Even though we don't we don't get quite into into that level of uh, you know one of the two guys being a, a jazz musician in in the club, uh, we do get the um, the repetition of uh, the song 
that the uh, the band there plays mm-hmm. the same as we got in the killer yeah um, so you got that you know relationship there as well yes yes absolutely and then I don't I don't recall I don't recall offhand in Les Samurai if Melville repeats the same song I don't think uh, he does the, uh, the I character think. I don't think she yeah no I don't think she does but um, you know if she had then you would have like a perfect through line going just with that little element of it and yeah. I also find it kind of interesting that we were actually connecting Melville up to uh, to both Jess Franco and Johnny Toe on this uh, on this week. So and that was unintentional. How's that for a little bit of kismet? Well, it is because these this was a very much a random organic um, hmm? programming that we did. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, you could you could think off the top of your head of, of two more far flung uh, distant uh, Melvillian disciples. Yeah, and and again, it goes to show you how much he looms over. This is a filmmaker who is making films in um, Spain in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and a man who is making films in Hong Kong in the 80s and 90s and 2000s. So, yeah, very interesting. Um, There are some great uh, little kind of flourishes. uh, There's a lot. This is is very much a film about style as well, in addition to um, homaging the, the genre. Um, like I love the the it's such a cinematic thing, but Toe is a world builder. Um, you know, he, he creates this world that his characters tend to inhabit. That um, is very cinematic, like you know, like a lot of great genre filmmakers do, and like Carpenter or Tarantino, like the bottles with the notes attached. It's sort of a very cool thing that if you were to see it in the film, you'd instantly know that it was a, it was a call to this. Yeah. You know, you, I really like that. Um, Lamb Suet shows up. I haven't had enough Lamb Suet in my life in some time. Yeah. Um, he's great. He is great. He's, he's really underused in this, though. I mean, he's he just is really kind of a guy. He's that. He's guy. He is guy. And I think, as we may have said in a previous show, he started out as an electrician working on Toe's films. And did he really? Yeah, he worked his way up from electrician to starring in the him. films. Yeah, he, he's the kind of character actor we you know we love to see. Oh yeah. Um, Wasn't well, he usually? Isn't the, the name of his character usually Fatty too? Fatty or some very chubby Fatty. Yeah. Yeah, you know, um, doesn't even get uncle. He's just usually <laughs> um, I, one of the things I like about this film is, and I think it happens with a lot of Toe's films, is the way it looks at fate, how people are intertwined, how f- you cannot escape your fate. Um, but sometimes how you make your own fate, which is very explicitly um, addressed on screen in a confrontation yes. with. Uh, uh, what would, Mr. Fortune Teller? Yeah, not a monk, a fortune teller. Mr. Fortune Teller, yeah. Right, so I think that that is very much a statement of intent. Well, that's, uh, yeah, that's that's the big theme, uh, deciding your life for yourself. Correct. Uh, you are and, your master of your own destiny. Destiny is not your master. Yeah, and, and uh, I think the one guy brings up, well, what about God? And he's like, yeah, don't worry about God. You do it yourself. Right. Um, so, I mean, it's pure, yeah, it's pure in that, in that aspect. And then uh, that scene... Which ends with the, with everybody going and peeing behind the trees out back of uh, Mr. Fortune Teller or in front of Mr. Fortune Teller's house uh, is repeated again later on down the road with the with the characters from the other family. Um, I mean, right down to the dialogue, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it's a very it's a very uh, very intent on uh, on making that point for us and for linking up uh, the two characters, Martin and uh, and Jack. Right. As being, you know, basically the same side of the same coin, right? right? Exactly, exactly. And we should say, I don't know that we did. We had said this. Um, 
I got so many tabs open here. Um, in terms of our leads, we have Leon Lai, uh, who you know I have to be honest, I've never been a huge fan of. Yeah, he didn't. Um, he was not as impressive in this to me. No, no, he he's you know Taiwanese actor. He's he's done some good stuff over the years, certainly, but um, never been a guy that uh, to me is a, like I, I don't get excited seeing his name in no. the credits like I do with well, for example. Uh, with someone like uh, Lao Ching Wan, who uh, to me I get excited whenever he's in a film. Um, he's one of my favorites. Um, so and he's got a great face. He's got yeah, for for you know I think um, someone that is in that stable of of Toe actors. Well, I think Toe uses a lot of great faces. You know whether it's Wong or Yam, just distinct faces. And I think Lao Ching Wan, uh, he has a body type. He's a little bit huskier and he's a mm-hmm. bit more darker complexion. So I think he. He tends to stand out visually anyway, much like Simon Yam does, right, with his complexion. And, and he's got a dead-eye stare. That, and he's got, you know, yeah. you, re- you could read a hell of a lot. Yes. It too. Yes, you absolutely could. Um, i, I got to say, watching this film kind of made me sad that Hong Kong films aren't better taken care of. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it looks, and this is 98, but it looks like it might as well have been like an 88 or 87 VHS that had been like second generation or something. Yeah, yeah, no, that's really, it's really, really one of the great, uh, yeah, tragedies of film. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, I love, uh, you know, these guys try to out-cool each other. There, there's so many moments that are just, like you said, it's 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 meta dick swinging. Oh, yeah. Um, and I just... Well, yeah, the, the scene with the coins and the wine. <laughs> with the wine coins and, and the wine and all that stuff's really good. It's really fun. Um there's a lot of blue and red uh, gels in the lighting, and there's like again very stylistic. Like Argento would be like if Argento was going to make sort of a Hong Kong, you know, bullet film, this would be it. Like in terms of the lighting, I mean, it's really, and it almost feels too like because this is you know the era of Tony Scott and Michael Mann, so you kind of also get those guys' influences thrown in the mix a little bit too. Um. But yeah, I love the tablecloth pull. It just that—that that is a great, great pissing contest for sure. Oh yeah. Um, I want to say I want to give it up a little bit uh, in this to Fiona Lung, who plays Fiona. Um, yes. She's quite good in the film, and a lot yes. of times we're not in in Johnny Toe, much like you know Peck and Pa or certain filmmakers um, tends to make films about men. But with this film, he's, I think he's crafted one of his better female characters in, a, in that, I've, that I can recall seeing. I would agree just with that. On the fringes or, you know, just a widow or whatever, right? I so, would agree with that. Very much so. Yeah. And yeah, we'll be hearing about that again later. Okay, good, good. Well, she's quite good in the film. There, there's a tragedy to her. There's, um, I think she encapsulates a lot of things that, you know the the perseverance, the loyalty. I think a lot of the maybe the best traits that we tend to think of with the women in our lives. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, she even she even says to the uh, the yo-yo character, um, not played Ma, by, by Yo-Yo Mung. What's that? Not Ma, by the way. <laughs> no, not. Uh, <laughs> she even says to her uh, after the 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 wine quote unquote tasting uh, scene. Um, she says to her uh, because the yo-yo girl the yo-yo character is is a a new girlfriend to jack and martin's uh, you know been with uh or martin's been with fiona for for years and years um yo-yo kind of wants to know how how to be uh the girlfriend of a triad guy and um 
Fiona says uh, they treat their brothers better than they treat their women. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's very telling, and it's you know I think it's very important, especially in terms of uh, how the film develops. Then, and when you get into like I was saying before, the melodramatic low, uh, where that goes, I think is very important. How the female characters, you know, obviously play into that because they're they're very important to it. Um, so, I would just point that out. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think this is the sixth toe film we've covered. By the way, there's so many more I want to cover too, like. Have you ever seen Breaking News? Uh, yeah. Man, that single take to open that film through the building is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Just unbelievable. Breaking. Or I meant. Sorry, did I say Breaking News? I don't know if mm-hmm. I just said. I meant Breaking News. Running on yeah. Karma is a really interesting one. Longest Night. Uh, PTU. There's so many. Running out of time. Running out of time is a really good one. It's a really good cat and mouse. Uh, yeah, I like with that one. Louching a lot. one and and one of my favorites, Andy Lau. Yeah. So, and Lamb Suet, of course, that, that's a really good one. But uh, anyway, um, what else do I got here? Brr, 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 brr. Uh, one of the things I've, I've noticed over the years is that uh, Toad likes to really contrast the serenity of nature with the chaos in the city. Mm-hmm. Like you, you get a scene of guys at the beach or fishing in a pond or at a you know a quiet dinner out in the country he tends to like to contrast that the, the frenzy uh, of night with the serenity of the daytime out in the country. So, um, Lauching Wan is uh, a man of many suits, uh, all of them loud. Uh, bolo tie, white suit, um, cowboy hat, cowboy hat, which is, is kind of his signature uh, calling visual calling card. I think is is the, the hat um, and the stash. And the, well, and the stash, yeah. Solid stash game, for sure. Um, yeah. Lots of t- close spaces and a lot of close and medium shots. You don't get a lot of kind of wide shots in this? Um, no. No, not, not a ton. ton. It's usually, usually like medium long, medium close, yeah. Because I think, again, there's that uh, that feverish intensity of the characters kind of being on top of each other in some ways um, with what's happening. Uh, you know, great scene in this film Uh there's a scene in a wooden cabin. Mm-hmm. It kind of feels like a bit horror, a bit Western. Mm-hmm. We get that classic visual cue of the blood dropping on the forehead. And then in this shootout, something I don't recall ever seeing, but it, it's tremendous uh, in this. And I'd forgotten about this scene. Uh, was all the bodies keep falling through the ceiling as they're shot down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great visual piece, man. Really yeah, although by, by, the point, by the point we get to that film... Or the, by the, time, by the time we get to that uh, that shootout, which is kind of the centerpiece of the film, um, it kind of you kind of get a feeling of resignation. You do. Oh, you absolutely um, do. Of uh, of what's going uh, going on between these characters, and certainly this is. I mean, this is the big turning point uh, for the movie. So yeah. it kind of is fitting in in terms of um, the two guys and how they've been going along and how they're going to have to go from there on out. No, definitely, Lao Ching Wan in this. Uh, Almost reminds me of like Elvis with like his sideburns <laughs> and his cowboy hat and his loud suits and his bullet ties and stuff. Um, what is this death? I don't know what that says. Uh, I love the kind of hard to kill e scene with the uh, with the hospital bed. Getting uh, kind of frantically yeah. moved out of the hospital. Uh, I thought of the Godfather first, but yeah. The Godfather. I'm trying to remember which which scene was that. 
when uh, they're moving Vito. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Okay, forgive me. Go figure. You think of uh, <laughs> God, but I mean, fucking Steven Seagal. <laughs> Ridiculous. Um, lots of daylight flooding in here throughout the scene, throughout the film. Um, he must have really liked, you know, really liked that, that, how that looked. Pigeons flying. I don't know if it was incidental or if it was a poke at the, the, um, Oh goodness! Not the sparrows, the um, the doves, doves, right? I, I don't know if it was just sort of a poke at the doves, but um, you know another great moment, and, and to such a strong visual filmic, right? Like is this the montage and the garbage heap? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a, yeah. That's one of my notes. Is uh, you know, um, Martin gets a, a heroic montage. He does, and the garbage heap. I think you can look at look at his metaphor too, right? Absolutely. Top of the heap, but what heap? I mean, it's a pile of yep. garbage. It's rotten. At what cost? Yep. Yep, yep. Right? So Absolutely. Going 100%. On. Uh, I love the bottle break over the head near the back end. Like, that was a boot. Like, you see a lot of bottles get broken, and none of them are really convincing from a sound design or um, a visual perspective. But this one, like, I felt like I rubbed my head. Like, ooh, that's got to hurt, man. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And then and speaking of, I mean, Mr. Fong is really just a fucking sack of shit. I find that in this, the honor and nobility, I mean, really comes from our two leads versus. Well, yeah, that's the point. They're not yeah, being governed that's... by people that are righteous and, and upstanding. Right, yeah. Right, no, that all. comes from within. That's the whole, you that's know, decide whole, your own. Yes, precisely. Yeah. Um, we get the most gratuitous inanimate object destruction in the history of cinema since Mr. Majestic. They do to bottles what was done to the watermelons in Mr. Majestic. <laughs> Just destroy them. Yes. Uh, what does that say here? Do, 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 do. The sentimentality with the wine. You know, I could, because of the eccentricities, visually at least, of Lao Ching Wan's character, I could almost see Anthony Wong in that role. I think I'd be able oh, to see Anthony Wong in any role. But yes. um, final note one of the, um, the henchmen wears a fishnet shirt with a blazer. He does, but you only see him for like a split for, second. And the instant yeah, I saw blink. that, uh, the instant I saw that, I thought, Will's going to fucking mention this. So. Oh, dude, that's so GGMC. How about, how about this, though? How about this, though? Both of the main characters wear coral necklaces at one point. Oh, amazing. Nice pull. Nice pull, go. buddy. Okay, I'm going to kick it over to you and uh, and see what you got to say. All righty. Um, it's very of its time, this film is. Oh, Wide-angle lenses, the tracking yes, shots. Yes, the fishbowl-y kind of stuff sometimes. Yep. Yes. Yep, it's pure, pure, pure. And it also does a lot of, again, going back to the, the Wu influence, you know, there's that, there's that, uh, there's a lot of, uh, when a, when an action is happening, like a person will say, uh, pull a gun on somebody, he'll either move the camera like up the length of the arm to the tip of the gun, or move it in from the gun up towards the the guy's face, like you know, very driving, uh, kinetic sort of uh, tracking shots, which yeah. is really a staple <laughs> of Wu cinema, in my opinion. Um, oh yeah, even even if it's coming from an old man, getting beat with a cane really sucks. Oh man! Uh, which is the sure. opening of the film with uh, with Mr. Fortune Teller just beating the shit out of Mr. Yam, Mr. Yam, who kind of kind of fades into the background aside from just being uh, one of the uh, the heads of the of the two families in this. Totally. Um, yeah, it really becomes about Mr. Fong just being a, a sack of dog shit. Oh, uh, total. There's a there's a hell of a decapitation in this uh, <laughs> off a guardrail, which really I, I mean when I saw that I was like, wow, that just seems kind of out of place. But then what happens with the with it uh, immediately afterwards? Um, 
makes it a little bit more. It, it starts to play a little bit more into the themes, and you um, you also get in that in that scene the the beginning of the idea of the respect that these two have for each other because they don't really uh, care for each other as uh, as brothers or anything like that. Obviously, but it's all about respect. It's all about you know I don't have to like you, but damn it, I respect the hell out of you. That's right. Uh, and that's that's the the, the whole of their their relationship because I mean the next time that they meet outside of the uh, the wine place or the the bar or whatever uh, they basically ram their cars into each other <laughs> which um, is another dick swinging like very much a cinematic moment oh yeah 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 um, but uh, Toad you know he tells you very little on specifics with setups mm-hmm. uh, he just lets it play out and, and I'm thinking specifically here of um, how we go from the the ambush that happens in the uh, towards the opening of the film, and then we go right from that to uh, Jack, the lie character, shooting up a, 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 an apartment, and you're like, "What the fuck is he doing?" And it's not until you know a couple minutes later that you get the idea what the hell he was, what the hell was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, these two guys are uh, the unstoppable force and the immovable object, uh, which really takes place in the the wine tasting scene, the pissing contest of it. Uh, and when the girlfriends show up, you you finally see you know who knows what's actually going on, and it's basically Fiona. Um, she kind of has uh, a handle on on everything that's uh, that's actually happening in this film. As far as if we need to have anything explained to us, she's going to be doing it because they're certainly not going to. Um, although we don't really need that done uh, by that same token because i think that that uh, toe really does a fantastic job of uh just letting these two actors uh play their characters against each other oh for sure um but i mean she gives us that kind of that out that that sort of uh easy breezy kind of uh, I'm, I'm saying it i'm saying it uh, i'm fucking it up is in other words so what i'm trying to say i'm, I'm not being uh, i'm not expressing like i would like to so i'll just move along um uh, Mr. Fong and Mr. Yam meet with the general, who's the arbiter uh, over there. I don't know exactly what his role is in the organization, but uh, he reminded me of the uh, the Asian Jim Jones. Yeah. Um, everything but drinking the Kool Aid. Uh, the yeah. Uh, when we get to the uh, when we get to after the uh, the hotel shootout uh, is when we hit the 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 height of the melodrama in the film. And it's really, I mean, the, the places that it goes to, I was kind of surprised by. Um, I shouldn't have been because, I mean, this is still Hong Kong cinema. But at the same time, the, the harshness and the starkness of the way that Toe depicts uh, what happens uh, was really um, kind of surprising and really kind of a breath of fresh air that he didn't go as over the top uh, as he could have in terms of uh, of really just kind of going for the... The exploitation value of these uh, these moments, right? Um, and like I said, this is where we start to really kind of uh, uh, carve out the uh, the emotional core of the film, uh, which will, for me at least, uh, culminate in the uh, the Versailles Club scene, uh, which I found to be extremely powerful. And um, yeah, uh, that's also where we find out that Mr. Fong doesn't like failure. He will <laughs> kick and punch and smash bottles off of people who work for him, like left, right, and center, without even thinking about it twice. Uh, he's not the kind of boss you want to have. 
He's uh, no, not even if he's undercover boss. Um, <laughs> do, 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 do. Oh, you gotta love Martin's plan uh, after he comes back to uh, to Hong Kong. It's absolutely fantastic. And again, it's one of those things. He doesn't have to tell you everything that uh, that he's going to do because he's, you, you're sitting there watching the montage uh, play out and you know how it goes. And then something happens that you're like, "Fuck!" Yeah. And you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, and you'll know too when you when you see the movie. Um, do, 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 do. I was curious. I don't know how specific. I don't really want to get specific about this because I don't want to give too much away. But there was a moment on a mountainside between Jack and his girlfriend that I'm not a hundred percent sure what happened after she says something to him. Um, like I'm not sure if he went went ahead and and did something for her or if he just kind of walked away. Um, so I, I just was. I liked I. I'm not putting that out as, as, a, as a criticism. It's actually something that I liked because, again, it, it just leaves it open for it could have gone, it could go either way. Uh, do you remember the the scene that I'm talking about? I'm trying to recall. It's towards the end of the film, mm-hmm. and it's before he goes back to uh, it's before he goes back to um, to China to Hong Kong. It's when he's still in Thailand with the with Yo Yo. Well, I can off the top of my head. Okay. All right. Skip it then. Uh, but uh, ba, ba, ba. there's a super, super elegant shot uh, involving a, a rifle scope point of view shot um, and how it moves or and or doesn't that I thought was just extremely, extremely elegant and just pure genius uh, as far as telling you everything you need to know in one shot, period. I mean, that's... You don't need more than that. For a guy and with then, such great flourish, sorry, for a guy with such great flourish, he also understood the impact of, of clean sort of economy of, of filmmaking and cinematography. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this this <clears throat> this shot for me is just it's the it's the uh, complete summation of that. Yes. Um, yeah. No. The, and then of course you get the the finale, which is you know just glorious, uh, filled with uh, all sorts of poetic justice. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, I really, I really, really, really like this movie. Um, I don't know that it's, I don't know how often I would give it a rewatch, only because of uh, its its slight pacing issues. But again, like I said before, unfortunately, the pacing, well, not unfortunately, regardless, the pacing issues are part of uh, what makes the film resonate so much, at least for me. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, no, good, good, good stuff. Uh, kick it over to you for uh, make or breaks in that. Excellent, excellent. Um, hmm. My make or break scene is going to be that scene uh, at the wooden cabin, the shootout. I mean, there's better dramatic scenes in the film, certainly, but mm-hmm. I think it's this is that's what that that's a not a character dick swinging moment, but that's a, a directorial dick swinging moment. Mm-hmm. We've seen a lot of shootouts and. Lord knows we've seen a lot of shootouts in the Hong Kong films. But that was something I hadn't recalled seeing uh, other than in this film, with these bodies just falling through the floor, the ceiling above, and it's nighttime. And I guess it almost has a, whole, like a horror feel to it. Mm-hmm. So there's just this this um, force of nature that is not going to be stopped. Um, and I really like that scene. Uh, but again, there's a lot of emotional beats that work really well, too, in spite of some of them being overtly and in, you know very much intentionally melodramatic um 
I gotta give it to, oh this is the tough one I want to give it to Louching Wong but I also want to give it to Johnny Toe because it's his jam I'm gonna go with Louching Wong because as great as a lot of the stuff is that Toe does um, we tend, I tended to really gravitate towards Louching Wong's character in this and um, I feel like if you had two Leon Lies um, it it unfortunately um, takes away some of the goodwill that the rest of the film has or does. Yeah, you need uh, you know someone to carry that ball, so to speak. Um, even if it was beautifully delivered, it needs to be still carried across. If it executed, and no pun intended, since we're talking about Hitman. Um, and my score is an eight out of ten. Uh, I think this is a solid, solid film. It's not his best film, but. Um, looking at the context of what he was riffing on and kind of lovingly sort of homaging. Um, it's, it's a good one, man. I'm glad, I'm glad from the sounds of it that you enjoyed it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, make or break for me is the Versailles club scene. Yes. Uh, it's, it's so powerful. It's so good watching, uh, watching what Fiona goes through and oh, she's really and good. how she, yeah. And how she stands her ground. Uh, is just phenomenal and how that plays out then uh it it ramps up everything about the film and it also ramps up our feelings of hatred for mr fong uh who i still maintain is just a massive piece of shit Shit. um yes so yeah i I, that would be my make or break uh mvt i am going to give it to toe um it's an incredibly well-constructed incredibly satisfying movie uh that uh you know even if it wasn't even if it wasn't uh riffing on uh, all these other things or paying homage as you say uh is still solid in and of its own right and uh my score is uh, exactly the same as yours eight Ooh, out of ten nice. so h- how about that two movies same scores how about that we didn't even get the 0.5 spread this week no usually yeah we're good for that 0.5 spread but uh, yeah no i was i really like this i've never i've i don't think i've ever been disappointed in tow um, and this is a total shit show, yeah. Yeah, no, never, never. Um, so yeah, no, just more good stuff, and uh, another reason to to dig into uh, to more of his uh, his back catalog and kind of see what what else is out there that I missed. Oh, definitely. Which was a lot, but still. No, totally. There's totally there's a lot for you <laughs> to see. Um, okay, cool. So that's the big show this week. We recorded uh, one review twice, and. Here we are. Um, we are going to be back next week. As you can see, we've been true to our word, and we've been keeping a pretty regular schedule, technical difficulties aside. Um, so we should be back in it next week with, um, well, with something. Uh, we'll have to converse with Sammy when he gets back from that um, body oil breakdancing competition. <laughs> Hopefully he got the brass ring. And, uh, yeah, we'll see what we're covering next week. Uh, as always, thank you for tuning in. And there's one thing left to say. Adios. Adios. Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com. And you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com. 